um, it, the 2005 memoir by Eugene O'Kelly called Chasing Daylight begins with these words. <clears throat> and they're a bit jarring. He says, I was blessed, I was told, I have three months to live. I was blessed that I was told I had three months to live. <clears throat> One of the things that he began to understand is, as he compiled his thoughts that were published by his wife after this successful CEO of an accounting firm, a husband, a father, um, was, was that in the way that Eugene O'Kelly had been living his life prior to his diagnosis with a brain tumor that was inoperable, um, that, that he may have had good intentions to plan perfect days and great memories and make great memories with people, but, but just the practical reality of trying to get on one another's schedules, right? If we tried to schedule a coffee or a hangout with your schedule and my schedule, like, just think about how long that kind of stuff happens. And man, the kids have got some sniffles going on and that, so it's not possible. Can we reschedule? But, but like, being in a place where you know that, hey, I do not have forever, he just said, I was able in three months to craft more perfect days than, than probably I would have been able to craft in five years or more. Because, because people were receptive to my call and my reach out, but I was also receptive to theirs. And that, that in that reference to Eugene O'Kelly, it's, it's a jarring one. It's, a, it's a, an extreme example to be sure, but it sort of echoes this idea that we want to hit today in week four of this series that we're calling Thought Life, the power of reframing. Okay, And if you're just joining us, what we're trying to do in this series is to think about the things that are bouncing through our minds. Right? You've got stuff bouncing through your minds right now. It might be Ravens related. It might be uh, what's for lunch related. It might be am I ever going to find a parking spot today related. Or can I move my car? And I wouldn't if you live here. Right? Like, uh, I mean, just what, what will, like, just all kinds of things bouncing around in our brains. And trying to make sense of it, from the hopes and dreams that we've got going on to the, to the, the more sinister things, that, like, the, like the anxious thoughts, the, the, the toxic thoughts, or even just the thoughts that if, like, man, if the world knew that I was thinking this, they probably would not like me very much, or whatever it is. How do we move those things into the light before God in the process of community and really walk in the invitation of Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. This, this invitation to flourishing of mind, body, soul that the Apostle Paul says is possible in the way of Jesus. And, and what we're trying to just take stock of in this series is, is just, hey, all these things bouncing around are not created equal. Some of them are not telling the truth. Some of them give an, 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 just a crazy amount of importance to you. For example, I considered wearing my Ravens jersey today. And I know what you're thinking. No, I didn't care one bit about whether or not you would think it's appropriate that I was wearing a Ravens jersey. I didn't care about that. But you know what I did care about? Hadn't worn it all season, and they've done really well when I haven't worn the jersey on Sundays. Wasn't worried a bit about whether or not you would find it to be appropriate preaching attire, but do think that somehow the clothing I wear plays some kind of being on the outcome today, right? You been there? <laughs> so, so we've got these narrators, right? If we just think for a minute about the middle school play uh, or our elementary English class, you know, like when you had to read a play, there was a narrator, 
And if you were kind of a ham, if you were an actor, you didn't mind being the narrator because the narrator usually has a lot of lines. Now, now, if you really are into the art of the theater, you did not really want to be the narrator because that's usually a pretty straightforward character, right? It's not the juicy, villainous role or something of that sense. But, but like in, a, in, a, in an English, you know, lit class or where you're reading a play, you will often, what is the role of the narrator? The role of the narrator is to try and make sense of the things going on, the things that that the audience doesn't get to see, or the things that might be limited by the, the presentation being on stage, right? The narrator is trying to make sense of, of all of that for you in the audience. And what we've said in this series is you've got a narrator. You've got some things bouncing around up here as you're like, man, I should walk on that side of the street, not that one. There's, you know, say, hey, this is what I want for lunch. This is like, you know, there's just some, some processes in which you just have like, adapted to the world around you, and you're just like going about your business. But they're not created equal, one more time, right? They're not created equal. So how does the love of God move us to reconsider all these things that we are like just narrating, right? And where can we find redemption in some of those things? Like, man, that's a good thing. Yes, awesome. But where can we also see some opportunity to move more towards the love of God and more towards our flourishing and the flourishing around us? Because here's the reality. Um, yeah, there's some situations in life where you could make a better decision. Yeah, there's some situations in life where uh, maybe you put yourself in an unwise spot. But, but what we often just so many times deal with is we cannot control the things that are happening to us. Like there's just a lot of stuff that might happen today that you, you actually don't have a lot of control over. But what you do have some control over is how you are processing those things, how you are thinking about those things, right? And so what we want to do today is look at the Apostle Paul and look at his invitation uh, situationally, but then also then take a look at the life of Joseph and to look at how Joseph in his life and this Old Testament story really, really sees this power of reframing overall in Joseph's story who, who lives a really difficult life encounters some really difficult situations that he would not script for himself, but is able still, despite even other people trying to bring him harm, walk in flourishing and break some cycles in his family and in the community around him, okay? But let's think about the situational really quickly, right? What situational reframing is, is, uh, is something that we, we, will, we will all face, you know, every day, right? Like, they're like, hey, these are the situations I'm in. I may or may not want to be in those situations, but, and I may or may not even be able to control all of them, but what I can control is how I'm thinking about them. Our friend Paul, who we've spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, wrote a letter to this church in a city called Philippi. This, this church in Philippi is near and dear to his heart. He's helped them start. They've got some conflicts and some things. He's trying to, like, help them settle and, and focus on the, the love of Jesus in. And, and like I said in, the, in previous weeks, Paul is a go-getter. He's a doer. He's a guy that gets stuff done. But now the, the context of the book of Philippians, this letter that he writes to this church, is that Paul is under house arrest. He's not in a situation he really wants to be in. And, uh, and oh, by the way, he used to be the guy that threw Christians in jail and tried to have them killed. Like, like he's, he's not a guy that like, would, would view this to be uh, an ideal circumstance. But listen to his words in Philippians 1 as he processes the reality of his situation in house arrest, like making the, the most of things he would rather not be doing. Listen to what he says. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, 
That is, what has happened to me actually it is advanced to serve, it served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now let's just pause for a minute, because remember this guy used to be a domestic terrorist who's trying to like stamp out the life of Christians around him, seething them as an existential threat, right? Something tells me that if he knew as a, a person who was not walking with Jesus that like if you throw Christians in jail, you, you don't break their spirits, you actually, like, they'll take this opportunity to, like, share their faith with one another. They'll, they'll be other Christians in jail, and so they'll encourage one another. And then even these Roman guards will see their faith in Jesus and be moved by it. Something tells me that when Paul was, like, in his terrorist days, he would go, okay, so let's not throw them in jail. Let's try something else. But here, as a person who's on house arrest for his faith, he's going, hey, it's not what I want to be doing. I want to be in Philippi. I long to be with the Philippian people. I long to go get some stuff done. Like you, would love the freedom of schedule and to do my own thing, but I'm here. I'm stuck. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to grab a Snickers. And I'm going to encourage the brothers and sisters around me, and I'm going to just live my life in a manner that reflects my hope to the, my, my, my captors, right? And that is situational reframing, Right? Here's this thing I'm, I, I don't necessarily even want to be in the situation I'm in, but I'm not going to let it break me. I'm not going to let it destroy me. I'm not going to let it turn me into a kind of person that's just going to bring down the rest of the room. I'm going to, even in my attempts to get out, to move forward, to, to, to pursue a better way, going to make the most of this moment. And, and that's one of the invitations, just practically speaking, we have every day, don't we? Right? When, when we say things like, well, I have to travel this week, or I have to, like, have all these Zoom meetings, like, there is a level of get to. Not to mention that, you know, it's not to say that there's not drudgery in all of that stuff. There's drudgery in every season, right? We, we tend to be like, okay, well, you know, life will be better when I'm in the next season. When I'm not in the place that I'm in today. Life will feel more complete. Life will be more cool. You know, like, there's always this sense of the grass being greener, but this invitation to situationally reframe says, hey, how do I water the environment that I'm in right now? How do I, how I, how do I maximize the opportunity of this season, even if it's not one I would choose for myself, even if it's one that's been thrust upon me, even if it's one I didn't sign up for, and even if I'm trying to get out of it, how do I live in a way that points to where my hope is found, right? So that, so that I can cling to that. I can grow in my own relationship with God. I can, I can help other people see the goodness of God working in my life. And as, as trials always do, I can see some things about myself in this process, right? What a lot of us will do is interpret God through the circumstances around us, right? God is either good or bad, mean or nice, depending on the situation I find myself in, right? Like, depending on the outcome of a football game, right? Is God good, or does God like to watch Baltimore squirm, right? You know, he's got, you know, what we want to do instead, and this is the invitation that Paul's inviting us to, to say, how do we interpret our circumstances through the goodness of God? 
even when the circumstances are unfavorable, even when the circumstances aren't what we would choose. That's the power of reframing. Now that's situational, of course. What I want to pull the camera back to in our remaining minutes is what we actually bring to all of our immediate situations, which is our stories, right? This all sounds well and good, and it sounds perfectly pleasant and a nice thing to do, except you and I are carrying backpacks of years of emotions, years of experiences, difficult circumstances, ways our brains of going, well, it's always gone this way before, why would it be different this time? And so I want to talk for a few minutes about reframing our story. Because, because in our immediate situations, we're, we're bringing our stories. And here I want to go back to the Old Testament and pay attention to this guy, Joseph. Joseph's story um, is complex. It's 13 chapters long. It's Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. So it's impossible for me to give you the full like rendering and complexity of Joseph's life. But let me just give you a sense of some things that he's dealt with. Let's talk about his family dysfunction really quick. His dad is like a famous patriarch. He's the youngest of many, many children, and he is unapologetically the favorite. Unapologetically. And a time where like the firstborn's the favorite. Right? A time in the ancient world like the firstborn where are my firstborns? Yeah, yeah, we are the favorites. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, like, uh, you know, like, you know, like, the, 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 the youngest here, you know, like, is, do, you know, so it creates some tension with lots of other brothers, as you might imagine, right? Because Joseph is unapologetically the favorite. There's a fancy coat of many colors, and, and there's brothers that are being, like, you know, the, like, doing things like the little brother is, like, going and, like, telling dad the things that are happening that they're doing. And it's creating tension, um, and, and so there's tension between Jacob, the dad, and these brothers. There's tension between the brothers and Joseph, and Joseph kind of leans into it. He's a bit of a brat, to be frank with you. He's a bit of a brat. So what the, here's what the conclusion is that they draw. Let's, let's throw him in a pit, let's sell him into slavery, and tell our father that when he sent the son out to like look for us and to kind of watch and make sure we were like flying right, he was mauled by an animal. That will, that'll, that'll really fix him. You know, that'll really make him think twice about, like, playing favorites and doing stuff like this. So that's what happens to Joseph. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold to slave traders. The brothers lie to the father, which means the father does not go looking for the son. He kind of takes them at their word when he sees that coat dipped in animal blood. He he assumes that his son's dead. And the next thing you know, Joseph is is a slave. Now, Joseph ends up, and this is kind of, now this is where you could maybe lose you, because, like, I'm... There's a lot of back and forth here. He ends up a slave, bad, but like works his way up to like a, you know, ends up in a captain's house in the Egyptian guard. So a pretty good situation given a bad situation. And he makes the best of it and becomes kind of a steward of the house. Like he has looked after like the affairs of this, this captain named Potiphar and like that's all going really well. And it sort of looks like things might get better for Joseph until... He refuses the advances of, jo- of Potiphar's wife, and then when that goes awry, she accuses him of assault, um, and all the credibility, all the trust that's earned is immediately gone, and he is now in a political prison. Bad. 
So we're back on the downside now, right? Back to the narrative, perhaps, of like, see, good things can't happen in my life. See, I'll always be this. Um, he, he, he gets it out, right? He, he trusts God in that circumstance. It, he, he makes the most of the opportunity. Next thing you know, he's like working with the warden and he's kind of running the prison, you know? Uh, and, and then he's dealing with other political prisoners that are coming in. He deals with this cupbearer and this baker and like sort of speaks over them to one, some words of clarity of what's going to happen to him and to other words of comfort. And to the one who's getting some words of comfort and a reprieve, he says to him like, hey, I've helped you out. When you get out here and you're going to get out here, think of me, like put a good word in for me. The guy's like, yep, I'm on it. And you would kind of think if you're Joseph, like the light is breaking through. But it doesn't. The guy forgets, whether conveniently or inconveniently, he just forgets. And for two years, he's sitting in there kind of in the place of like, man, I thought I had this thing ironed out. I thought I was going to get out of jail. It doesn't come to, to a head until Pharaoh, who is now having like just dreams about like these devastating things that are going to happen to Egypt... Um, and he's articulating this and acting out on this, that that cupbearer two years prior that he had known from jail, Joseph had, uh, says to Pharaoh, like, hey, I know a guy who might be able to help you. Right? So now we have the prospects of a good thing. Now, I'll, I'll move really fast here. Basically, Joseph interprets these dreams and says to Pharaoh, like, hey, you've got seven years of abundance. You've got seven years of scarcity that follow. You need to prepare in your abundance for the scarcity that's going to come, and that's going to set Egypt apart. And then and Pharaoh does kind of this Charlie and the Chocolate Factory thing where he's like, okay, thanks for that, and you're going to help me run it. So now this guy who's been in jail for years is like second in command as far as like preparing for this feast season and this famine season. Well, guess who turns out in the famine season? The, the brothers in Canaan who had sold their brother into slavery in Egypt make their way to Egypt looking for relief because Egypt is pretty well stocked, all things considered, for this difficult season. And what you have in the, in the part here in, in Joseph's story, and I, and I will be quick on this, it's, con it's the part of it that's hard to explain because it's convoluted, it's weird, there's back and forths. And you can see in Joseph this, this tension between like wanting to know what happened, wanting to make things right, and kind of wanting his brothers to get what they deserve. Like kind of wanting his brothers to starve. Kind of wanting his, you know, and then he finds out his dad's alive and, and here's all that happens in the end. Like all this comes together beautifully in some reconciliation but it's messy and then Jacob the father dies now I don't know what you've dealt with in your own families but often the death of a patriarch or the death of a, a parent or a grandparent can create some relational nonsense can it and uh and, 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 it, and, and the thought for the brothers of Joseph is that the death of Jacob is going to create this kind of relational nonsense. So check this out in Genesis 50. We're at the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph's brothers see Joseph bring an envoy from Egypt into the land of Canaan, where Jacob and the brothers are located. Listen to what, he, what they say. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, 
they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're saying to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers of their sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to him, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And this trends the end of, book of the book of Genesis. Now, I'm not trying to be like a theological nerd here. I just You need to know this device in the book of Genesis because it matters. The book of Genesis begins with like a oneness between God and creation and God and humanity and, and like everything's hunky-dory. Sin comes in. There's fractures between God and man and God and one another uh, and, and, and man and one another, like, and, and like man and himself, right? Like, and, and that pattern keeps repeating in the book of Genesis through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And you know what Joseph just did? He broke the cycle. Joseph, just for a moment, breaks the cycle of nonsense, by saying, hey, all this, all this junk that I've dealt with, all this junk that's gone on, it's ending here. Because I can see what God has done in my story. I can see what you intended to do. But I'm not going to let it continue to perpetuate these cycles of nonsense. And I can see how, even though you wanted to harm me, in, in releasing my need to give you what you deserve, I'm going to stay focused on... On, on the, the main thing, the saving of lives, getting people through famine, getting people through hardship, and, and living differentiated from the, the story that I was, was given. This is, this, is, this is how Joseph reframes his story. Now, I don't want to paint the picture for you, and we do this sometimes with Old Testament characters. Well, we do it with the Bible in general. Now, be like Joseph. Do we just be like Joseph? Hey, listen, if I could just be like Joseph, I wouldn't have to come back here next week, right? And you wouldn't have to come back, because, because, but, but the reality is, like, this is the journey, right? Like, we can see the thing Joseph is able to come to after many, many years, and we can probably see for ourselves, like, man, how great would that be if that could be an outcome in our story, if we were able to make sense of things the way Joseph's able to make sense of things. I, I don't have a lot of time to do this, but I want to highlight four things, and they will be quick that I don't mean to offer to you as a linear equation. Here's what I mean by that. I, what I'm not saying to you, like, like if, I, if you had a headache today, I would say to you, well, um, have you drank some water? And have you eaten? And, like, you know, so do that and do that. Maybe take some Tylenol or ibuprofen if you like. And then, like, then, you know, we'll give it a couple hours. Like, that's like a pretty linear series of events, right? And I think sometimes what we, what we can do with a sermon is, like, Oh, so Scott is saying if I do one plus two plus three plus four, I will reframe my story. And I don't want to sell that to you. What I want to offer to you is maybe four things that Joseph is able to do in making sense of the story that's been written for him to reinterpret the story through the goodness of God and, 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 and live on a new course. So that when those situations come up, and there's going to be other stuff in Joseph's life and those brothers, there's still going to be tension going forward. 
But when that stuff comes up, how can I live into this thing that I aim to do differently in light of the love of God, right? Uh, I'll, I'll offer you to four things, and I'll offer them to you quickly. One, um, and, and this is very well expounded upon, by the way, if you want to read Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the chapter on uh, looking back to look forward is, is like a robust discourse on the four things I'm about to say, Okay. One is that Joseph is able to sense the bigness of God in his story. Here's what you know. That the voices of people who have hurt you, harmed you, tried to motivate you to be your best self, like who sell you a picture of success, like those voices are pretty loud, aren't they? Right? Um, Henry Nouwen talks about five lies of identity. I, I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what others think of me, I am my, my worst moment, I'm only my worst moment, or I'm only my best moment. And what a lot of us will do is operate out of this identity, operate out of these voices. There are plenty of chances for, for, for Joseph to sort of be like the kid who's like, okay, I'm out of my oppressive small town, but now I'm like, now I'm in Egypt, and I'm just going to live into that identity. Or to be the kid that's like, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm always the victim. Like, what can you do? Like, it's never gonna go well for me. There's so many chances for Joseph to listen to voices that do not have his best interest in mind. But, but four times in the book of Genesis, chapter 39, there's this understanding that God is with him. He has this understanding that God is with him. So he has a sense where he's always paying attention to the bigness of God doesn't necessarily mean worship. It doesn't mean he always feels connected. He doesn't always feel super spiritual even. But he's, he's always kind of paying attention to that. So when you get to Genesis 50, when he says to the brothers who are scared and are bowing and are panicking, he's like, am I in God's place? Like, I, I don't want that weight. Let's be honest. There are probably some moments where he did want that weight. Like, you know what I want to do to you? I want to do to you what you deserve to have done to you. That's what I want to do. And you know that feeling pretty well, don't you? Oh, let me, let, me, let, me, give me, let me get a hold of my boss and give him a piece of my mind, right? Like, how do, I, how do I live into, though, the bigness of God in my story? To pay attention to where that may be playing out and how that might be playing out. And what is God's character, even as the other voices in my head feel like they're louder and more instantly rewarding. Right? Second, a willingness to face big feelings. A willingness to be, face big feelings. Like, Joseph is so good at processing heavy things, but there's this pattern. You even see it here. He gets the news from his brothers, and what does he go do? He weeps. That's not like the first time he does it, by the way. This is like a recurring pattern where, where Joseph, even in public spaces, kind of holds it together and then, like, goes and, like, cries. Why? Because there's pretty big feelings when, like, the brothers who sold you into slavery are now coming back and begging for you to, like, help them. And, and it's a weird thing because they don't know who you are, so you could do, like, literally whatever you wanted to them. And Pharaoh doesn't care. Like, what's it to him? There's some big emotions to process, and it's important that he does. For all of Joseph's, like, brattiness in early life, like, like, there's this channeling to, like, a maturity of how to process big feelings. And what a lot of us will do with big feelings is we'll deny them, we'll minimize them, we'll rationalize them, we'll distract ourselves and try to outrun them, or we'll just be a jerk 
and not even necessarily know it, right? If you, want an, uh, if you have this person in your life, ask a hard question. What is it like to be on the other side of me? Right? Because sometimes you are hostile and pe- you don't even know that you're being hostile. Why? Because there's stuff going on down here below the surface that you're not processing. Here's what you need to hear and hear very clearly about this reframing business. This is not, this is not, well, I just believe in Jesus and it's just all going to work out and it's just all good. You just trust God. That's what I do. I just trust God. Like, even when we're saying that, and even if we mean it, there's anger, there's fear, there's sadness that, like, often is lurking below the surface. And what we don't process is going to come out. It's going to come out. And so part of the work of spiritual, doing the spiritual lift in our thought life is not to minimize these, these toxic things, but to bring them into the light in prayer, in community, with good counsel, to say, hey, I, I do need some safe places to process these things. Listen, I, I mean, like, I, I resonate with Joseph because, like, I don't want this to be a therapy session for me, right? Like, I, if I had big feelings about the game today, I don't need to say them into the microphone for you for 30 minutes. You're like, why did I go to church? Right? Like, but there are places in my life and in your life where we can be real, we can be honest. And if we don't have those places, we, wouldn't, we need to cultivate those places. I was, I was just thinking this the other day. I had, a, I had a friend I was talking to. They're one of those safe people, you know, just one of those people that you can be yourself amongst. And they awakened something in me that was just painful. Like I, and I started to talk about it. And you started to see my, like, I, I felt my heart rate go up and I felt myself getting like a little amped up. And they were here for it. And you know what I immediately started to want to do? Like, like it, it was a safe person and it was a safe time. It would have been appropriate, by the way, for me to say, hey, I don't have time to talk about this. Can we talk about this tonight? But, but it was one of those moments where I had the time. And you know what I just kept doing? I kept looking for that off-ramp. I kept looking for that, that spiritual turn of phrase to, like, just shut down the conversation. Why? Because I just didn't want to go there. I just didn't want to go there. And why do I tell you this story? Maybe just to say that I'm in this with you. <laughs> just to say, like, we, we all have days like this, right? There's, there's, even to have safe people still cultivates in us the need to create spaces to, to, to actually process the things that we're feeling. And, and some of us may be really, really gifted at this, and some of us, because of the story we had, this is really, really new to us. This may be really new to us. Joseph is able to rewrite the script life handed to him. His brothers did want him dead. His brothers did want him to go away. Um, And it would be really toxic for Joseph to really walk in that the rest of his life, right? That narrative that you're worthless, you're terrible, you're a problem. Go away, disappear. But look at what he's able to do. Again, after many years of doing the work, okay? Um, You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph is not minimizing, by the way, the thing that happened to him. And he's not minimizing how it made him feel. And he's not minimizing the impact of it. He's simply saying, I am not going to walk into that narrative. Like, you did want to destroy me, but I'm not destroyed. You did want to harm me, but, and, I, and I might be scarred, but I'm still standing. Like, 
I'm going to pay attention to, to what, I'm going to rethink the assumptions of this conversation. Jesus talked about this when Jesus said, you've heard it was said, but I say to you, right? When Jesus was saying that phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, hey, you've got these assumptions about how the world works, but let me challenge you to go deeper than your assumptions and to look at the kingdom of God. And that's what, that's what Joseph's able to get to. To say, hey, people will intend to harm me. People will intend to victimize me. Even people didn't mean to harm me. I don't think that cupbearer had ill will towards Joseph. He just was very human. And so whether it's the people that meant to or didn't mean to, the, the, the wounds that we carry and the, the things that we've been through, can, can we redirect those things to see the opportunity um, that they provide? What does this make possible? Kind of back to the situational side of it. In your notes at foundrybaltimore.com slash connect, and you click those sermon notes, it'll also be on social media this week, there's a, there's a place to do this activity called the genogram, which is just a way for us to like sort of take the messages that we've absorbed in our life. It's, an, it's a tool. It's, a, it's an exercise you can do prayerfully. Say, hey, this is the stuff that's happened in our story, that happened in our family of origin, but like, what of this can I like Stop, to, stop walking in because the love of God is offering me a new invitation. Last, and, and this is where we'll land, he, he partners with God to be a blessing. So there's this group of people who mean harm for him, but he just is able to stay focused on, on the thing that is happening right now, the saving of many lives. And I don't want to minimize this. I don't know that Joseph will ever really fully understand why the things that have happened in his life have happened in his life. But what he is able to do is to see the opportunities in that moment that they are providing. And, and to walk in that. And again, the, the invitation for this conversation is not to minimize the pain of your story, to minimize your loss, or to minimize your grief, or your anger, but rather to say, how can the things that, have, that you've, you've experienced and you've gone through, how can we, can, can we, how can we, we can't control all those things, but we can control how and what we do with those things now, right? Joseph didn't have control of all the things, many of the things that happened to him, but he did have control of what he did with the resources and what he did with his envoy and what he did with all those things at the end of his life. He partnered with God to be a blessing. And, and so as we move to communion, I want to just extend this invitation to you. I just continue to come back to the idea that these things that I've thrown out in situations and stories are, are not this linear equation. Well, if I, if I reflect on the goodness of God and then I spend 30 seconds processing my emotions and then I rewrite the script of my story and I partner with God to be a blessing, reframed, go Ravens. <laughs> what will be more likely to be true is that every week we walk in this room we come in maybe with one of those four things really sort of needing to be like, the, one of them is probably the sore spot. I don't see where God is working right now, or I don't, I don't know how I feel because I just have been running so hard and fast, or I know how I feel and I'm really flipping mad. <laughs> and I don't know if there's space for that before God. What we celebrate in communion is that the love of God moved towards us, big enough to move towards us despite our small and frail postures. Despite the fact that you've thought some things this week that were really harmful maybe to you or to someone else. Despite the fact that you're not really sure anything good can come out of the situation that you're in right now. 
or you're looking for but have yet to find, or you know, and it's really going to be a hard thing, um, maybe some of the things God wants to do with the pain in your story. Communion is just that safe place to just always keep coming back to the work of going, hey, God is for you. God has moved near you. Keep going. Keep going. And so what we do as an act of just to keep going is we celebrate that in Jesus there is forgiveness of sin. There is the power to release the things that have happened to us even if we don't know how to make sense of them. And there is a God walking with us as we do these things. So as you partake of bread or cup, you're reminding, you're taking a a physical posture of like, I'm reminding myself of these truths. And as I'm milling about the room, I'm reminding myself that I'm not alone in that posture. I'm not alone in that process. So don't rush this moment. There's a thousand things to do today and there's a thousand things to celebrate, but don't rush this moment to let God meet with you in wherever you find yourself today. There's four stations in the room, all of which are gluten-free, and we invite you to participate and partake after I pray. God, it, uh, sometimes when I say things into microphones, at least for my own self, it, it, it sounds like we're, we're just saying, like, do these things, and everything, like, comes up like it's supposed to. God, Joseph's life, Paul's life, our lives, they're messy. They're messy. They're heavy, they're hard, they're filled with celebrations and tears. Sometimes the same day. God, today, whether we're angry, we're scared, we're excited, or we're just sad, what we declare in communion is that you are near us, have moved towards us, and have conquered sin and death. And that's not nothing for what you can do in our story. So help us to wrestle well and to think well of those things and to think well of what you would do in our hearts, in our, in our hands, in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray and partake.